Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Happy Tuesday. We have a very special guest coming up, uh, the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, who was uh, one of those in Donald Trump's sights and um, was, was, was effectively purged, not running for re-election. He's out with a new book. We'll be talking with Jeff Duncan in a moment. But before we did that, I wanted to be joined by our colleague, Sarah Longwell, uh, who is doing something that I find absolutely fascinating and I wanted to highlight for you. First of all, good morning, Sarah. How are you? Hey, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Now, just what the world needs. The world needs um, another podcast. <laughs> apparently but this one is this one is different i just want to tell you that that we at the bulwark we have a, we have a suite of podcasts but this one i think is kind of i i think this is unusual it's called the focus group so Tell, tell us what, 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 you're, what you're doing here. Well, you know, I come on your podcast and obviously over at The Secret Podcast, I talk about my focus groups a lot. And yeah. I love focus groups. I love hearing what average voters are thinking about any given issue. Um, it's wow. taught me a lot about how to understand Trump voters. It taught me a lot during the last election about how to understand swing voters and what was persuasive to them. And I just, nothing nothing I talk about gets as much feedback as the focus groups because people yeah. are always like, well, how do you find these people? And, Real people. You know, how do you, why, how do you not just start, you know, yelling at people, which is not, you know, that's not really how it works. I'm not there to try to persuade them. But what I thought would be interesting is to kind of bring people behind the two-way glass, which is where you sit back in the olden days when we used to do these in person. Uh, but the pandemic has really allowed, it like completely changed the game on doing focus groups because, you know, once you moved over to Zoom, you basically could talk to anybody anywhere without having to, you know, leave my basement. And it also allowed us to capture the audio. And so, you know, we just started getting releases from people so that we could share some of their unfiltered thoughts. And the other thing that happened was, you know, as I started to talk about them and tweet about them, as I would get a lot of reporters and other people being like, hey, can I sit in and watch? And as I said, sure, yeah, you should come watch these. Uh, but when they did, I thought, you know, you know what I'd, I'd like in return is uh, you should you should come on my podcast and we'll talk uh, we'll talk about what the focus groups mean and the political implications. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm really excited. You know, I have a personal you're you are my biggest personal hero uh but another one of my personal <laughs> heroes is uh is amy walter yeah, and she's so fantastic amazing and so she yeah. she agreed to do the first uh podcast with me and i think it's a great episode and i'm super excited for people to hear it you know i actually you gave me a sneak peek of it and it, it is very very interesting for people who you know are not familiar with all of this to, to to get voters in the wild and then to find out what they are really really thinking and then to have somebody like amy walter from the cook report uh do political analysis uh i i i think and i've told you this in in, in private sarah i think this is going to have a cult-like following because if you are a political geek of any kind you're going to want to hear this because, first of all, you 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 hear the the actual voices of the voters, but then you get this just you know grade A political analysis of 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 the moment and the issues, uh, the discussion between you and Amy Walter. So it is it is uh, it is fantastic. So this launches the first the first episode launches when. Well, we uh, did a little sneak peek yesterday for uh, Bulwark Plus subscribers, which if you haven't already, you should go become a Bulwark Plus subscriber. Definitely. Um, but uh, it is it is up. It is up on Apple Podcasts or anywhere uh, you find your podcasts. So go download it. Give it a review. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and take any the, feedback the focus you have. Group. 
That's right. The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, uh, or you can just put in the Focus Group bulwark. Uh, but I do, hey, Charlie, one of the things I wanted to do just yeah. as an experiment or, or just to explain a little more about focus groups and the way they work. See, the reason you do a focus group is you have your own judgment about something, right? This is what mm-hmm. pundits do. They say, here's what I think about politics. And they kind of just you know, they think that they know what how other people out there are thinking, and they're often wrong. And if you listen to people directly, you learn a lot. But I did a focus group recently where I had chosen the music for the podcast, and I thought it was really great. And then I had 10 people I knew listen to it, and they assured me that the music was horrible. And so the one thing that I want to give your listeners is, is I want to, they can hear what didn't make the cut. Hey, America. What are you thinking? The Focus Group with your host, Sarah Long. Make it, make, make it stop, Sarah, really seriously. I mean, God, really. <laughs> See, this is why you need a focus group. This is why you need other people to, to take you by the hand and say you don't really want to do that. You really don't want to go that direction. You should never trust your own judgment is the lesson here. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far, but, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if you're, you know, when it comes to, to music, it's always, you know, people are idiosyncratic about it and you have your moods, you have your moments and okay. At, at least, at least you have friends and family who are able to pull you back from the brink there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, America, what are you thinking? Come on. I thought that was going to kill, but no, most everybody reacted the way you did. Please make it stop. Well, this the, I want to make one point about all this that that I, I've always I got to say I've always been a little bit skeptical of focus groups in part because I'm I'm always afraid that they're going to make my head explode, but it is important to understand the complexity of thinking that is not picked up with polls. I mean, this is something that I think in in your in, in your discussion with Amy Walter in your first episode, uh, I thought this was one of the interesting takeaways that that sometimes you will have polls that would suggest that you know the the, the, the you know American voters have you know these attitudes or, you know, this, this linear thought process, when in fact the reality is it's a lot less formed and focused. And that's why when you sit down with real people and you have these discussions, they can really surprise you, can't they? They can. And I think, you know, it really is kind of texture and to, to, to the political conversations we're having. The polls can only give you kind of a snapshot. And frankly, as we've seen in the last few cycles, the polls have also been uh, not as accurate as one would like them to be. And especially, you know, like in 2016, had people, people who were doing focus groups in 2016 could have told you, I don't know, man, I think Hillary Clinton's in real trouble with these swing voters. They really hate her. Um, And that that might have taken together with the polling, given you a more complete picture, and it might have ratcheted people's expectations back slightly. And so, you know, I think going into 2022 and 2024, understanding that there's a lot of voters who are even swing voters who, you know, don't believe the election was Mm -hmm. stolen, who think that January 6th, what happened there was really bad, who were vaccinated, who also still are very skeptical of Democrats. And I think it gives you a good sense of the hill that they have to climb uh, with a lot of swingish voters. And I think it's, it's good for some of these open questions that you and I and others talk about all the time, like, did the Democratic Party rent these, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of right-leaning independent voters? Are they becoming red dog Democrats? How are these demographic shifts um, changing who's in each party? And so those are the kinds of things that fascinate me. And for other people who are fascinated by uh, those types of conversations, I think they'll find value in listening to the way people are thinking about these unfiltered from them. 
And the podcast is The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. Sarah, thanks for for joining us. Uh, Appreciate it very much. Thanks so much, Charlie. And when we come back, we'll be talking with the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. Thanks for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And a special thank you to all of the Bulwark Plus members. We launched Bulwark Plus a year ago, and I don't think we really had any idea back then how fast it would grow or the kind of challenges we'd all be facing in the post-Trump era. If you've been listening to us or reading our newsletters, the in-depth pieces on our homepage, you know that we are committed to telling you what we think in a thoughtful, non-tribal way. But we're also not going to pretend these are normal times, and we're not afraid to try to make a difference here at The Bulwark. And we intend to keep fighting because the challenges to democracy are more urgent than ever. None of this would be possible without your support, and we're very grateful. If you haven't signed up yet for Bulwark Plus, please consider becoming part of the Bulwark community. And if you already have, thanks. We think you're in great company. And we're back with today's special guest. Jeff Duncan is a lifelong Republican and is the sitting lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia, which probably tells you about how complicated his life is, especially since uh, he was one of those Republicans who refused to give in to the big lie about the election. And as a result of that, uh, announced earlier this year that uh, he was not running for re-election and has emerged as a nationally recognized voice, urging Republicans to reframe their pitch and has a new book out called GOP 2.0. Jeff Duncan joins me on the Bulwark podcast. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Great to be here. I'm doing well. So let's talk about um, what happened in Georgia. I want to get to your story, the kind of uh, blowback you got when you began referring to Joe Biden as the presidential elect, uh, as, as president elect. But, you know, last week we had one of the uh, members of Congress, one of the 10 uh, Republicans who voted for impeachment, Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio, announced that he's not running for reelection. You have announced you are not running for reelection. And I guess the first question is, why not stand and fight? What, what, uh, why, why not stay in the party if you consider yourself a Republican? Because if, if guys like you and Anthony Gonzalez leave, doesn't that just leave the field to the Trumpists, the people who believe the conspiracy theories? Well, I certainly hope to have a chance to run again for election. Uh, it's an honor of a lifetime to wake up and know that millions of people are counting on you to make the right decisions for them. And certainly, I think the last almost three years now in Georgia as the lieutenant governor, uh, me and my team have done a good job doing that. Uh, but look, this this party is broken right now, and uh, somebody's got to step up and do something um, to try to heal and rebuild it. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to try to run again for re-election as lieutenant governor, I'm only going to have a chance. And, and it's a it's a big task, but only get to have a conversation with Georgians about how we need to rebuild and heal this party. I'm ready to have a, a conversation with the country. Uh, I want to talk to 350 million people, even if they don't end up voting for us and let them know that there is a better way to do this. There's a better pathway forward. And GOP 2.0 is as conservative as any kind of movement in, in, in the party's history. It just is going to do it with a better tone. And for some reason, we have we have all fallen for this short-term sugar high of screaming at each other and tried to translate it as conservatism inside my party. It's not. If we want to get our way, we've got to have, you know, we've got to be, in, we've got to win elections. Uh, and so I'm having a conversation with the country over the next few years and 
it's a big task. I get it. Uh, show me all the stats you want. It's certainly not, uh, the skids are not greased for this being an easy challenge for us, but uh, I think we're going to continue to gain momentum. Well, I'm reading your book and, and the, the, the horrific experience you had for telling the truth about the election, the kinds of threats you had, the, the friends you lost, the kind of vitriol you put up with. But it strikes me that there's a lot more wrong with the Republican Party right now, as you describe it, than simply a matter of tone. I mean, it goes a little bit deeper than that. It goes a lot deeper than that, doesn't it, Mr. Duncan? Well, you know, look, from a Republican standpoint, there isn't a whole lot of grades of separation or degrees of separation amongst the policy uh, between, you know, the different factions that feel like it's out there, right? Those that are just walking blindly following the former president and those that are really wanting wanting to be back in charge. So the policies aren't that different. I think it's it's all about the approach. And, and certainly we can dissect our, our failed approach. I mean, I talk about it a lot in the book. Uh, the opening kind of portion of the book is really a, around a, two days before the election at a Trump rally. He spent 47 minutes on stage. I think it was uh, three minutes talking about all the all the wins with the conservative court and the vaccine and the economy and 44 minutes ripping the face off of every human who's ever said something mean about him. Uh, if he flipped that around, I think that crowd would have walked away, or at least the, the cameras covering that speech would have been able to to pitch a better message to the suburbs. Uh, look, there's there's obviously some some disagreements within the party, massive ones, but I think it's a stylistic one and not a policy one. Well, I mean, let, let, let's go back to that. Uh, you 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 believe that uh, it was because of Donald Trump that uh, you lost two Republican Senate seats uh, in that special election, which was a huge reversal. Obviously, gave control of the United States Senate to uh, to the to the Democrats at least for now, and yet. Your party hasn't, the, the Georgia Republican Party really hasn't recoiled from that. Uh, you know, why is there not more blowback for the damage that Donald Trump has done, not just to individual Republicans, but to the Republican Party as a whole? You would think that people would go, okay, you, you've lost the presidency. Uh, you know, you, you've turned Georgia at least purple. Um, we had two incumbent U.S. senators. Both went down because of your your rhetoric and your position and, you know, casting doubt on the election. I mean, why, why are not, why are Republicans not more disgusted and, and angry about that? Yeah, I think there's more and more uh, that are, that are starting. To, I, I think there's several phases of this, Charlie. There's those that are openly disgusted and I'm one of those, right? It's embarrassing that we lost those two Senate seats. Georgia is a conservative state. Uh, we are, we are certainly center right. And uh, we lost those because, unfortunately, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue hired Donald Trump as her campaign manager for 10 weeks, and he ran them straight into the ground. That's exactly what happened. Uh, and, and I certainly have made no, no mystery about that position. I think there's another group of Republicans that, are, that know the truth, that, that, that understand that, look, we've got we've to go in a different direction here. It just, look, uh, it, it feels hard to do it when you know that Donald Trump's going to put you on his letterhead somewhere uh, or whatnot. Uh, or make a, a national spectacle of, of who you are and what you are. I, I'm, I'm exhibit A of that. But I got to tell you, I want to encourage anybody who considers themselves a conservative that could see themselves waking up one day and voting for a conservative instead of, uh, you know, Joe Biden or, or somebody that's kind of continuing to follow that thought process. That, uh, look, the pill's not that bad to swallow. Right? All you got to do is just admit what you know, and that's there was no election fraud. And uh, we need to do a better job of messaging to folks across the country of who we are and what we are as Republicans. That's it. The pill is really small. It's uh, it's being cast off as being some massive dose of medicine that doesn't taste very good. It's not. Uh, and quite honestly, Charlie, it's the only winning strategy we've got. If Donald Trump keeps attaching himself to candidates all over the country, we're going to look up in a couple of election cycles from now and just go, what in the world just happened? 
We just missed an entire decade as Republicans to be in charge of anything. Uh, and, and certainly, I, I think more and more folks are waking up seeing that. Is there enough well, yet? No, but it's headed that direction. So this pill um, is, it, it may be small and simple, you know, to say, hey, you know, we lost an election. The election was 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 not fraudulent, but apparently that is, uh, that's that's a suicide pill for, for re- Republican candidates. I mean, it is interesting that you can be Marjorie Taylor Greene, you can be, uh, you can be Madison Cawthorn, you can hang out with white nationalists, you can embrace conspiracy theories, you can, uh, you know, speak kindly of uh, insurrectionists, all of those things, and you'll still be a member in good standing of the Republican Party. But if you do not buy the big lie, you're out. It is there's there is no room. And I guess that's that's the point right now. It's very clear there is no room. Um, and, and you know, you must be looking around and seeing the incredible silence. Uh, you know, Adam Kinzinger is standing there. There's Liz Cheney. And beyond that, there is a whole lot of crickets among Republicans about exactly what you are talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a couple of things helping us. One is Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and, and those of, of similar uh, messaging status uh, or beliefs are, are, in my opinion, they rest in the outside 5%. And for some odd reason, the outside 5% on both sides feel like they're in charge right now. That's not the case. I think there's a silence majority that I talk a lot about in the book that sits in the middle that is ultimately getting to the point where they want to start to elect adults in the room. There's a vacuum of leadership of epic proportion, right? I think there's a there's a number of folks that you know are are starting to see that in in a wider swath than just Republicans. I think there's folks in the middle that are with Republicans on seven out of 10, eight out of 10 issues that reluctantly voted for a Joe Biden that just because they couldn't stomach Donald Trump or his his approach that are now waking up seeing, wow, leadership does matter. Big decisions, conservative strategies might make sense. I mean, they're watching that unfold. And I think this is, look, you got got to bear with me here and put your Mm -hmm. optimistic hat on for a second. But this is accelerating the trajectory towards a GOP 2.0, one that is able to make conservative decisions that understands limited government, public safety, national security. Those are the cornerstone pieces of our future that we're really, really good at at the end of the day, that the adults in the room are going to be are going to be able to, to make those big decisions when it needs to happen. And I think America is gravitating in that direction because here's you, you, you mentioned this earlier on in that question. The only question that Donald Trump's political apparatus asks if they're they're coming in for an endorsement, it's not, hey, did you vote to shrink the size of your state budget? Hey, did you protect law enforcement? Hey, did you, you know, focus in on educational demands? None of that. It's simply, were you with us on the big lie? Or as I call the books, the great hoax? And if the answer is yes, you accelerate to the top of the list. That's crazy. Right. We are better than this as conservatives. We are better than than, than, uh, as, as Americans. And I think that comes back to to hurt them and accelerate the need for Americans, the biggest swath of Americans, to gravitate towards the adults in the room. And I hope to be hope, hope to be part of leading that charge. All right. So, uh, but before we get into the, the the story, because I really do want to walk through what 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 happened there um, over the weekend, um, the former president of the United States apparently is serious about being reinstated. I mean, we all have to take a deep breath here about this is not being normal. This actually really happened in real life. He wrote a letter to, um, uh, you know, Brad Raffensperger, your secretary of state in in Georgia, asking him to start decertifying the election. Um, I would respectfully request that your department check this. And if true, along with uh, many other claims of voter fraud and voter irregularities, start the process of decertifying the election 
or whatever the correct legal remedy is and announce the true winner. So here you have the president actually writing a letter to the secretary of state of your state asking him to decertify the election and declare that that he, Donald Trump, not Joe Biden, is the true winner. I mean, how do your fellow Republicans in Georgia react to that? Well, my first reaction was when I put up, put my eyes on it, 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 it felt like a middle school political science project, right? I mean, it was just crazy. Uh, but what, once again, it's, it's a continued trajectory where I think, you know, common sense people are starting to put the math together here and realize that it's just, uh, it's not right. It's not normal. And it certainly doesn't make any sense. Look, this isn't breaking news, but it's going to maybe sound like it. Donald Trump has 0% chance of ever being the president of the United States again. And the quicker Republicans take that medicine and the quicker Donald Trump takes that medicine and realizes it, the better our chances are in 2024 to win. I mean, think about this. He's trying to talk about he's the rightful winner of a 2020 election cycle and also trying to figure out if he's going to campaign to run in 2024. I mean, there's a mixed message there that continues to all be about one person and one person only, and that's him. Meanwhile, Charlie, this is from a, from a conservative's point of view, we continue to suffer as a country at failed leadership. We continue to watch the unfortunate events in Afghanistan play out. We continue to probably see a, a long-term net effect of the economy suffering from synthetic stimulus that's showing up in people's mailboxes all over the country, where we need scalpels instead of chainsaws. We're watching you know, mandates show up that are, that are making labor markets even more disrupted. Uh, look, this is, some, this is some serious stuff. And we got to stop focusing our attention on Donald Trump and start moving forward. But look, I get it. He wants to be in the headlines. I think he's one of those guys that wakes up and he loves to see his name on the front page of the paper, no matter what it says. He just sees his name and that, that's enough to make him happy. Well, I want to talk more about the politics of, of, of Georgia, um, in, including your background. And when I, when, I, when I said that, I was immediately flashing forward to, well, I, I, let, me, let me do that. Let me just flash forward to it. It, it. it appears that Donald Trump is intent on pushing the candidacy of Herschel Walker for the United States Senate, which I have to say, sitting here in Wisconsin, looks absolutely insane. And once again, you are a, from a Republican point of view, this is, these are winnable Senate elections. And yet Donald Trump is pushing a guy who, let's say, may not have all of his marbles in a row. And again, every indication would suggest that Republican voters, primary voters are prepared to go along with all of that. So what you're describing, you're being optimistic, but what you're describing I mean, is I mean, what we're looking at is a situation where things may actually get worse. That that Donald Trump is going to push the party even deeper into the crazy. Yeah, we certainly have have a mess on our hands trying to get the Senate back here in Georgia. I mean, I think the the fundamental problem that we've got is no nobody knows what Herschel Walker's politics actually are. I mean, I, I've certainly never heard any policy positions that he's got. I, I know he's really good friends with Donald Trump. Uh, but I would encourage him, like like I did Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, that that's not enough to win in Georgia. Uh, and it may, might feel like it when you walk into a GOP meeting at you know 8.30 on a Saturday morning at a buffet line. But with the 12 people out there clapping for you, it takes more than that to win a statewide election. And I wrote an op-ed the other day that, that we, we, we put out there in the universe that basically said it's not enough to win the first half. We got to win the full game. And, uh, you know, look, I, I hope I hope we wake up from this 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 moment in time here as Republicans, both here in Georgia and nationally, and realize that you know it was a temporary moment of insanity, and it's and it's you know, let, let's get back on track. 
if we miss another layup after after the display that that Joe Biden keeps putting on the board, uh, if we miss another layup, it's our fault. Uh, there's certainly nobody to blame but us. So let's talk about what happened with you. You are the elected lieutenant governor. You uh, won a primary. You had you know you had served um, you'd served in the Georgia House of Representatives, and you you won an underdog campaign for lieutenant governor. Uh, and, and, you know, serve as the number two official in the state of Georgia. You obviously had a really bright career ahead of you. You're what, you're 46 years old. Is that right? Yep. 46. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, on, on, on paper, future governor, possible U S Senator. And yet, uh, after the 2020 election, you spoke the words president elect Biden. So what happened? Tell me about what it was like when you joined the voices saying, no, this, this election wasn't stolen. So you, to, to get to that point, you got to understand how I got here. I was a okay. professional baseball player, spent six seasons in the minor leagues, actually some time up there in Wisconsin, by the way, mm. uh, played for the Kane County Cougars uh, when I was an A-ball and, and made some trips up north to the, what is it? The Timber Rattlers. I don't know. Yes. Still around. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, the Beloit uh, somethings, snappers. Uh, anyways, uh, so played baseball and then got into the business world, built a, built a business and sold it. I got into politics because I got challenged to stop complaining and start getting involved. And I made a promise to my family that it was going to be a policy over politics platform. And that's how we were going to operate. And so I spent five years in the house and came up with some big policy ideas and decided I either wanted to be in charge or go home, ran for Lieutenant governor against all odds and won. And so when I got to the seat of Lieutenant governor, you know, I had this platform and had this opportunity to push big conservative policies and there's no more conservative policy than honesty. And when I watched the events starting to play out with the former president talking about our elections being rigged and conspiracy theories, I decided to step up to the plate like I thought millions of other Georgians would or or Americans or conservatives or Republicans or somebody and call them out for not saying the truth and trying to trying to save face or or even worse, try to overturn an election. And so I just spoke the truth. And, And the truth is this. The election was fair and legal in Georgia. Unfortunately, the Republican presidential candidate lost. We got four years to heal and rebuild and to get back on track. I think we can do it, but it's certainly going to take a lot of effort. So I wonder whether your background in, in professional sports, um, and, and you're, still a, you're still a youth coach as well, whether it came down to sort of a sense of, of sportsmanship that, that you wanted to be a good loser as opposed to a sore loser. I mean, is, is it sometimes as basic as that, telling the truth, but also just understanding, you know, knowing when to fold them? Yeah, Say, I, yeah. I, I so, lost so, so much of, of my life in politics is is just kind of leans back into baseball and all the lessons I learned. I, I thought playing baseball was all about making millions, but unfortunately it wasn't. Um, and so, yeah, look, I, I don't know if it's about being a good loser. It's about being a smart loser, right? Mm-hmm. So early on in my career, I'd, you know, I'd give up a home run and lose the game and, and be so mad I'd rearrange my locker. And by the time I got later into my career, I realized I had to harness what I did wrong that night so I didn't repeat it the next day. And that's really where I came back from this. It's, hey, look, this isn't so far gone. We didn't lose by 100 million votes, right? We lost by an edge that if we just kind of change our approach, if I I just throw that two-seamer a little bit further outside, or if I just get a little more on top of that breaking ball, then I'll win win tomorrow. I think that's where we're at as Republicans. And I talk a lot about this pet project in the book, policy, empathy, and tone. If we just do a better job of reminding folks of the policies that we're good at, and moving our feet on a couple of the other policies, like immigration and conservative gun policies. And in one of the areas I, I talk about is the death penalty. Uh, and then we do that with a little more empathy. 
and do it with a better tone, I think we put ourselves in a position to win. So, you know, look, and at the end of the day, this message in my party is going against a, you know, a smart loser strategy versus a sore loser strategy. And to me, that's, that's the dichotomy that we sit at. And that's the fight that we're at in, in today. So let's go back to uh, the, the aftermath of the election. Uh, you write, each time I said no fraud or President-elect Biden on national television, the insults and the hate poured in from across Georgia and from 49 other states too. Groupthink or doublethink was the goal and Republican leaders achieved it. Each time I read messages on the way home, I sure felt good I had two Georgia state troopers with me. People wanted to rip my head off. Friends disappeared or became rabid enemies overnight. Now, that's an ominous, ominous story where the sitting lieutenant governor of the state for basically telling the truth about the election actually has to be in fear of his life because of this toxic political tone that has been fostered by the man who until recently was the president of the United States. That is a dark vision of what our politics has become. Yeah. And I hope we turn the page and move forward. I mean, certainly those were some difficult times for our family. Definitely a, a moment in time where we grew even closer. Uh, I've got three boys. I'm married to my high school sweetheart. I mean, we are as close, us five are as close as any family in America. Uh, yeah. And one of those daunting moments was, you know, I was out there playing catch in the front yard uh, in, during, in between January and, or November and January. And, you know, there's, there's, marked state trooper cars out in, in, in our front yard watching us play catch. And I'm thinking these guys aren't protecting me against terrorists or, or some sort of criminal faction. They're protecting me against Republicans that are upset that I'm telling the truth. Uh, that was an eye-opening experience, but, but look, Charlie, I, I can't say this enough. That is a small outside fringe that does not represent the voice in the future of this party. And we're in a fight for getting that voice and that future up to the front of the, up to the podium. And we're, we're going to do it. Right. There's no doubt. And, and the weight of reality is always right. And reality is that this is a center right leaning country. Folks are with us on a number of issues. And it's our job to make sure that we meet those those those, those expectations and, and we deliver a better product in 2024. I think we can you, do it. Yeah. You, you went through an experience that many of us went through, though, which is to lose friends, to be exiled from, you know, from from a movement that you thought you understood and and it and it does come as a shock because I'm sure you're looking around going, um, I thought these were my allies. I thought these were my friends. And you mentioned that you had good friends disappeared or became rabid enemies overnight. I mean, this is an extraordinary experience. And that, I'm, for people who are listening who may not be sympathetic with the fact that you no, know, you know, that we're talking about you know conservative Republicans, but these are people that you had known, people you had trusted, people you thought shared your worldview. And what happened to them? I mean, you lost friends. Yeah. Right. You, you, you know. You, 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 so interesting. Yes, there was a group of people out there, a larger group than I would have ever have expected, that were just visceral and visible, you know, upset. Whether I saw them at the grocery store, or at the kids' field, or in the neighborhood, or whatnot. Here's the part that really got me: was the folks that were outwardly talking about, you know, fanning the flames of of election fraud and recount after recount, and Donald Trump really won but then privately would come around, look both ways, put their arm around me, make sure their voice was just yeah, loud enough that I could hear yeah, it yeah. and say, Jeff, you know, thanks for saying the truth. Thanks for standing up. Thanks for being a man of integrity. Um, you know, I wish my, you know, I wish my friend you know, or my district or my, in, my sphere of influence was, was more supportive, or I wish the Republican leadership would give us more air cover. Those are the folks that I just scratched my head, but look, if I'm going to build the tent, then it, those folks are included too. 
they don't have to say they're sorry. They just got to make sure that they change they 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 change uh, their position and move on. Well, this is the extraordinary dynamic, um, you know, and Adam Kinzinger has been talking about it all weekend, you know, the, the need for people to speak up, uh, that uh, silence is not an option. As it turns out, silence is an option, right? And there's an option that many Republicans have taken. So whether they believe this in public or not, they're not willing to say it. What's the dynamic? Are they looking at what happened to you? What's happening to Brad Raffensperger? Are they saying, you know, I may agree with them. I may, you know, think the same way, but, but I don't dare speak up. Is it all simply cowardice? Is it, uh, to me, what, what, how do, how do you explain the fact that the party, at least in public seems to be going along with all of this? Yeah. Look, I think there's, there's a little bit of water coming over the dam now with voices like me and Adam Kinzinger and others. But the dam's going to break. And, uh, you know, look, I know this from my corporate days of, of running a business, that there's a very big herd mentality. And, and the herd's going to start moving in, 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 in the right direction. They're going to start moving away from a failed strategy that, look, grateful for four years of conservative leadership, a legacy left behind in the courts, uh, the, the ability to get a change agent into town in D.C. and get things done quickly. I got that. I, I respect that. We can harness that and improve it. And to me, the herd mentality is coming our way. And uh, we will see uh, a step in that. It, it just doesn't feel like it right now. But folks will start coming this direction. It will be cool to be a, a rock star conservative with a better tone at some point in the near future. And that's really the point of GOP 2.0. I don't want to give up on the fact that I'm a conservative. I am, and I'm proud of it. I believe those are the best ways for me to run my family, to run my business, to live in a community. But I don't have to be angry about it. And to me, that's really the dichotomy that we're at is, you know, somehow we figured out that you got to be angry if you're a Republican. That's not the case. We just need to be proud and happy, happy warriors going forward. And I think that's the way that we, we attract the folks in the middle to come our way. So, you know, and I'm listening to you. I really admire the optimism. I really admire the hope. And I kind of remember that I thought the same right after the 2016 election. I thought, OK, this is going to pass. People are going to see this. They're going to watch this. They're going to turn around. I know these people. They're not going to buy into the crazy. They're not going to buy into the lies. They're not going to buy into the cruelty and the viciousness. It's just a matter of time. They're going to come around. And instead, my life has been, over the last five years, the invasion of the body snatchers, to, to borrow Jonah Goldberg's phrase, you know, watching, you know, one, what I thought, uh, reasonable conservative after another, just basically, you know, go full zombie. So I, I admire the the optimism, but I'm looking around and I'm not I'm not seeing the the the, the birds. I'm seeing guys like Anthony Gonzalez leaving. I'm seeing you leaving. I think it's very possible that that all of the ten Republicans who voted to uh, impeach the president might not be around in 2023. I'm I'm seeing the best lacking all conviction and the worst full of passionate in, intensity. So I, I, again, I'm, I'm hoping you're right, but it does seem, I mean, to the extent that there's, there's, there's a dam, the, between the silence and the willingness to appease Donald Trump, I wish I had your confidence, but I'm afraid I don't. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, and and yeah. certainly there's a dose of reality that splashed in there. I think this is more than just optimism on my behalf. It's, it's reality. The reality is that uh, the weight of reality is always right. It's just a matter of how long it takes. And I think we're in that pause period right now. But look, I think a guy like Anthony Gonzalez, I mean, what a great leader he is. What, what a great young up-and-coming star he was going to be. But he's not done. Hopefully that guy has a chance to, to, to win elected office again and have his voice heard and his conservative passion heard. 
hopefully a guy like me is able to find his lane. But right now it's it's just it's chaotic on the battlefield within Republicans. Uh, we're we're making it too easy for the other side. For example, we're we're you know we've allowed in, as a, as a Republican, I don't like the leadership that Joe Biden's putting on display. I don't like the decisions being made. And I think there's a number of people that wake up that, that feel that same way and need to put a better player on the field. Uh, we need to put a better team together. And uh, that's part of this process. Uh, I hope if GOP 2.0 is successful, right? The book is, is, is a book, but it's really about a movement. You know, at GOP2.org, I've got folks literally every day, all day signing up from around the country that are wanting to get more information about how they can join the movement mm-hmm. of being a conservative, but doing it with a winnable approach. And to me, I think we're going to get there. I genuinely do. And I think we will significantly influence who the Republican nominee is in the 2024 cycle. I really genuinely do. But how do you get back to sanity when the entire conservative ecosystem seems to be stoking the insanity, whether it's vaccines, whether it's not, it's the big lie or anything? Are you able to break through to the people who... um, who, uh, you know, watch Fox News, who watch OAN, who watch Newsmax, who think that Tucker Carlson is a, you know, is 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 the genuine voice of of, of conservatism. How, how, how do you get back to rationality when there is so much on the right invested in the irrationality? And you're talking about tone. If anything, the tone appears to be more angry, more bitter, um, less empathetic than it was even when Donald Trump was elected. You turn on most conservative talk radio and it, you know, you're, you're not seeing a better tone and you're not seeing more empathy. So how does this happen? Well, I talk about that specifically in the book is, you know, the power of two, the power of three, the power of more. So the power of two is go find a friend on the other side of the aisle or on the other side of the issue and, and just get a full, a full 360 panoramic view of the issue, right? I did that in the house with a gentleman by the name of Dewey McLean, sat next to me as a Democrat, played in the NFL. And certainly I got to know his side of the issues and, and he got to know mine. The The power of three is we got to go find more news sources than just the one that makes you feel warm and fuzzy for 15 minutes sitting there in front of the screen and makes validates all those lunchroom arguments that, that you thought you won. But look, I think there is a silence majority. I don't think that represents the majority of Americans. I don't think a majority of Americans, if you're a single mom with a couple of kids and a couple of jobs, you don't care if a Republican or Democrat's in charge. You simply want somebody who's going to help you succeed, help your kids get the education they need, keep the crime off the streets you're raising your family in. To me, that's what this is all about, is getting back to what a majority of Americans want. Now, not the outside armchair quarterbacks that think they're they're running for Congress every five minutes, but the folks that genuinely get up and go to work and care about their families. That, to me, is where the numbers... Uh, sit. And that's that. That's to me where the majority sits. All we got to do, I don't have any answers for Donald Trump. He's going to be as important as long as he wants to be important. But I think an overwhelming majority of Americans are going to wake up and realize that they need a better pathway forward. That's what GOP 2.0 is about. And I think a majority of Americans are waking up every day thinking they need a better pathway forward than Joe Biden. And so that to me is we want to be recognized as the adult in the room that can call balls and strikes yeah. like a good umpire. I, 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 I want to think this is true, but if, if you, I guess the reality check, and we keep talking about the reality, the reality check is that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a rock star in the Republican Party and Liz Cheney is a pariah and that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn are more likely to be reelected than 
Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney. So what does that tell you about the way things are going? I think it's a temporary blip on the radar. I know that sounds optimistic, but mm-hmm. look, here's what's here's what's happening. You know, Donald Trump is getting in his political apparatus is endorsing all these people that who knows if they're conservative or not. All that all I know is that they're checking the box that says they believed in the conspiracy yeah, theories. That's Those all folks matters, show yeah. up and put on poor leadership. They don't make good decisions. And and oh, by the way, they're gonna get beat in generals too. Right? We're gonna take a bunch of safe seats and turn them into up for grab seats and start losing even more majorities around the country. That's what it's going to take, isn't it? I mean, when it really comes down to it, the the only time political parties really change their trajectory is when they have been defeated, right? I mean, isn't that the only, we, 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 can, we can make all the arguments, you know, to the better angels of their nature, but un, un, until the Republican Party loses more elections, they're, they're really, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to go for 2.0. Yeah, and, and I should have mentioned this earlier, right? So I think that there's going to be three different unique pathways that people show up to support GOP 2.0, right? There's going to be a group of folks like me that just believe it wholeheartedly, right? Policy, empathy, and tone, we got this. Then there's going to be folks that show up that, you know, this is like, you know, my parents and all their friends, you know, they used to say it every day, man, that Donald Trump's really doing a lot of good for this country. I wish he'd put his cell phone down, right? Those folks that just recognize the fact that you need a better tone. And then the third point, the third lane that, that you mentioned a second ago, millions of folks are going to wake up and just get tired of losing. I mean, how many people are going to lose small little elections like city council or mayor's races uh, or county commissioners just because they didn't believe in the big lie, just because they got beat by somebody that got up there and said that they believed in the big lie? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the problem. I mean, I was looking at uh, some of the voting records, you know, people like uh, Anthony Gonzalez, you know, was like 85%. I mean, his his conservative, you know, credentials are 85% plus. Y- you would have been considered a solid conservative, you know, up until five minutes ago. So give me, an, you, you talk about empathy. G- give me an example, though, of, of what you mean. Because right now I'm thinking most people are thinking, this is a party that has is now remaking its image into rejecting empathy. You know, talking about tone and empathy sounds a little bit like what, you know, George W. Bush was talking about doing a generation ago and that the new iteration of the Republican Party is really, you know, not interested in being empathetic. So what what does empathy look like in, in your mind? Yeah, empathy, in my opinion, is sitting down at a kitchen table and talking to that person on the other side of the table and understanding what their issues are, not telling them what the, what your solutions are, asking them what their problems are. Hey, wh- what's in your way from being the, the, the business person you want to be? Or what, what's in your way of raising your family the way you want to be? Right? We can't just run campaign ads with the right people sitting in the right seats two weeks before an election and call that empathy. Right? Like I think immigration is a prime example of that. I'm all about border security. In fact, I think Democrats are all about border security too. Maybe not Joe Biden, but I think an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that border security makes sense. But why are we avoiding this conversation about the 16 million undocumented folks that are here, right? Some of them are embedded in our economies. Some of them are embedded in our communities. Some of them are paying taxes, right? Some of them aren't. Why aren't we having a conversation? To me, being empathetic means being willing to have real conversations not just pandering to folks two weeks before an election to try to get them to vote for you. That's empathy. Well, that that was the conversation that a lot of Republicans tried to have a few years ago. President Bush tried to have it. There was the gang of seven or eight. There was a, a moment when Marco Rubio wanted to have that conversation. And the Republican Party rather decisively rejected that conversation. 
rejected people who were in favor of that sort of approach to immigration. And now it seems that the orthodoxy of the party is the, the hardest possible line. So I, I, I completely agree with you, but I feel that we made that attempt and we kind of know where the party's going on this now. Yeah, I think there's mixed messages. I mean, look, I think the the build the wall project, which is that that's exactly what it was. It was a project. It wasn't a policy reform. Was was pitched to to Republicans that that was going to be the end all be all. Uh, you know, we we watched what happened. Biden unwound the build the wall mindset in a matter of hours, and now we're in a you know epidemic crisis down on the border. Uh, we got to have a real immigration reform plan. I think Republicans can lead on it. And Charlie, here's another area of opportunity for us: healthcare. There isn't. Healthcare is complicated. It's difficult. It's wonky. Uh, and it's certainly not going to be solved in partisan corners like we've tried to do for the last 20 years. We got to try to solve healthcare with the real experts in the room and just stop as Republicans uh, screaming at Obamacare and actually look for a real solution forward. I know of no better policy out there that we could really come in with some wisdom filled ideas and try to figure out how to match up providers with patients, with hospital systems, and with payers like the insurance companies. Figure out a better plan that empowers small businesses to be job creators to offer benefits instead of just individual government programs that are unaffordable. That is a blank canvas waiting for a conservative artist to show up with. Yeah, instead, the the re- Republicans. Well, I, I suppose we don't we don't have time really to get into in, in terms of healthcare um, the approach to the the vaccines, which strikes me as just absolutely mind boggling. Uh, that, you, that you're seeing that you, you're seeing kind of the this this anti vax culture. I, I, how do you explain that uh, among among Republicans who you would think that this would be a a no brainer? for Republicans to be able to rally around sound science, sound medicine, um, and to protect the the lives and the health of their own constituents. Yeah, certainly the vaccine hesitation, just to be fair, is across all kinds of demographics and, and voting patterns and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's disproportionate in certain areas, but the vaccine is the greatest solution we have to move through this uh, pandemic. Uh, quickly and efficiently and safely. So I encourage everybody here to get a vaccine. And if you've got questions about getting a vaccine, go find a a medical expert, a doctor, a nurse, uh, or somebody that can answer those questions for you to to get you over the hump. Uh, And certainly anybody who would be anti-vax for uh, any reasons other than just they have their own personal questions or hesitancies uh, is not helpful. It's not productive as a country. Uh, And whether you think in economic terms and understand, you know, what a lockdown would do, uh, or think about what these mandates are doing for small businesses that are, are that are disrupted, or how it disrupts educational patterns. I've got three kids that were disrupted last year. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got to move forward. And vaccines are the new tool that we have that we have now that we didn't have a year ago that can get us through it. And that was one of the troubling things with Donald Trump. As I sat there at that rally two days before the election and listened to him, he should have spent forty minutes bragging about the fact he accelerated a vaccine yeah. market. Instead, he spent mere seconds talking about it and moved on to how bad he hated everybody in the world. <laughs> that, that, that is, I, I, I think that historians are going to look back on that and they're gonna, that, that will be one of the things that they really puzzle over is, is, is why, you know, you didn't take the, the, the Trumpists and Trump, Donald Trump himself didn't take the easiest possible win on all of this. Jeff Duncan, thank you so much for joining me. Jeff Duncan is lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia. He has a new book out, GOP 2.0. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thanks for the time, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.